In the beginning, there was darkness. A void waiting to be filled with the echoes of destiny. From the depths of time, legends emerged. Heroes forged in the fires of adversity, their stories etched in the fabric of eternity. Through the sands of ancient deserts, across the vast expanse of galaxies, and amidst the tumultuous waves of the ocean, their journeys began. But amidst the chaos, there arose a whisper, a call to action, a beacon of hope. Now, as the world holds its breath, a new tale unfolds, a story of courage, of triumph against all odds. Join us as we delve into the depths of imagination, as we embark on a journey beyond the realms of possibility. For in every tale lies a lesson, in every legend a truth waiting to be discovered. This is not just a podcast. This is an odyssey, a quest for knowledge, a quest for inspiration, a quest for the very essence of what it means to be human. Welcome, dear listeners, to a world of infinite possibilities. Welcome, dear listeners, to the True Life Podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the True Life Podcast. We are here with the one and only Kevin Holt, explorer, author of the tremendous book, Young, Successful, and Miserable. Um, if you ha- He's also put out quite a few. I-, I know you have at least one course in breath work. Do you have multiple courses in breath work? I've got two. Well, let's, I've got, let's say, a free course. That's on my YouTube channel, which I haven't done any effort really into growing or promoting, but I loaded these videos up there. So I have a, I have a, a 20 or 21 free sessions. That was sort of like my trial run at this course. And then out there, I was selling it for a while and then I decided to just give it away. And then I, um, I spent about a year redoing it and making it better, making it longer, adding content selling on my website that's a longer course and then i've got a short paid course that's just meditation it's what i call a 28 day meditation course because 28 different meditations that you can do one at a time and so yeah i guess two courses two paid courses one free one and the book that's what i got right now nice man it's a do you find that so you i'm sure that when you began building those courses I'm sure you were familiar with it and you saw the results in your own body and your own way of life. But after you made those courses, did you find that after, like, I always found that after I write something or I try to build something, my understanding of it becomes much more intense and much more encompassing because it, oh, shoot, I lost him here. Oh, we lost him, ladies and gentlemen, but he'll be right back. Yeah, we are talking about the idea of once you begin teaching something, then you become even better at it. It's it's almost like you have to become better at it so that you can teach other people how to do it. I lost you there for a minute, but I was just telling the yeah, people so that, that I forgot uh, to switch the Wi-Fi and then I switched it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I was I was just I was just saying that like you know once you 
whether it's teaching a course, maybe writing a book or teaching somebody anything in order to, to be confident in yourself as a teacher, you really have to learn it. And then even when you become a teacher, it's like you learn a whole nother side of it because you're showing it to somebody else and you're seeing it manifest in someone else. Did you find that once yeah. you created the course that you learned more about it? Well, yeah. And I think one of the reasons I did create it was to learn more about it. So mm -hmm. when I went through, I did a yoga teacher training, of, I think it was like six years ago now. And what yoga teaches you is that there are basically, there's like kind of steps or step levels of techniques that you gradually add to your practice and the ultimate level being samadhi or enlightenment. And uh, the first two are more like inner and outer disciplinary things like don't be violent towards others, uh, you know, trust and surrender. That's the internal thing. And then the third one is the, what we think of as yoga. You go to the studio, you do the downward dogs, the upward dogs, the asanas. And then it goes after asana, it goes pranayama, which is breathing, then meditation, then concentration, and then a couple other things and then enlightenment. But what I found was that all, most yoga classes today in the West, especially, they only really do the physical part. There are a couple teachers that might add in some breathing techniques and maybe give you a minute or two of meditation. But the way yoga was originally meant, it was meant to strengthen the body to allow you to meditate. It, mm. it wasn't really about the postures. The only thing they ever wrote about the postures in the old book was to have a comfortable seated position. That's the only thing that was ever written. So the rest was all about meditation, but somehow over the years, I don't know if it got lost in translation or mixed yoga classes now are just about sort of the aerobic part of it and, and the postures. And I, when I wanted to do a teacher training, I wanted to explore more of these deeper yogas, you could call them the breathing, the meditation. And I found that they didn't really even teach that. Then there was hmm. some, there was a little bit about that, but it was still mostly about how to design a class, how to do the posture correctly, how to correct the posture and others and so on. So I found this gap in, in the breathing and I had a book on it, but no one really taught me. So I just decided to start reading the book and practicing it and then sort of trying to piece together all the stuff that's out there. And as I learned it, I would, you know, practice it and then make a video on it. And so I thought that that was something that people might benefit from. So then I made the video and it's, I didn't really have a purpose what I was going to do with it. And I wasn't sure I was going to finish it at one point. I was just doing it. And this is a kind of fun little anecdote on listening to the universe where I had started to do it. And then I got to a point where I said to myself, what am I, what am I doing with it? What do I want to do now? And I was sort of confused as to what to do next. And I'd already put some of it on YouTube and no, I mean, no one's looking at this course. I mean, maybe, maybe a few dozen people, some friends, you know, okay. a couple dozen views, maybe a hundred at the most and the most popular one. And my friends commenting and stuff. I mean, no one really saw it. And I remember I, one day I put it out there. I just sort of in meditation, I said, well, what should I do? What should I do next? And then uh, I went to sleep and woke up and some totally random person commented one of my videos saying oh i really loved your video i you told me some, i've been teaching yoga for years and i haven't seen some of this stuff like, i really like it and then i was like oh okay that's sort of a, an answer i guess yeah of yeah the universe going like okay finish the course so then yeah. i finished it and then uh, i finished it up maybe six months ago 
and then slowly started putting it out there and uh, got a few people doing it and sharing, you know, through word of mouth. So that was kind of fun the way that sort of played out. Yeah, that you know what? And I, I really think that that particular scenario plays out in people's lives and sometimes they miss it. I know it's happened to me. And even in my life, if I'm paying attention, you know, a, a little while ago, maybe a couple of days ago, like it's, it's so easy to get burned out and get, you know, just like, oh, what am I doing? And I think everybody goes through these phases where they, they find out like, you know, what, what am I doing? One of the last week I was just sitting in my work truck and thinking about stuff and going like, oh man, you know, I, it's not, things aren't exactly where I want them to be. And I just kind of put my hand in my, or my head in my hands for a little bit. And I was just sitting there thinking and some random stranger walks by and he's like, Hey buddy, you're doing a great job. Hang in there. You know, I just, wow. I, just start, I just started laughing. I'm like, oh man, the universe loves me, man. Like, like what kind of a, is that random? Is that really random? Like if I have this thought in my head, like, and then just some voice in the ether yells out, like you're crushing it, buddy. Keep going. You know, like I, I, I guess you could choose to see it either way. You could choose to say, oh, well, that was odd. Or you could choose to say, look, that's the connections. Like that's you putting a thought out there and something answering back. Because what's the difference between a voice in your head and a voice outside your head? You know, it's, I guess you could say schizophrenia yeah. and normal people, but I mean, it's, it's, the, it's similar to me. And I think that those instances happen more often than not. And if you're willing to pay attention and maybe it's the breathing, maybe it's yoga, maybe that's just being in tune with your body or the planet around you, but those things happen. And I, I, I'm willing to bet a lot of people just pass them by daily. For sure. And what this question gets really interesting depending on how you, what angle you take it, because I've got tons of examples like that yeah. where, like you said, you're frustrated or lost and then you get this little, little boost that says, you know, keep going, keep going. Yep. What about the stories? And there are some good ones there of where the universe is telling you stop or like just making everything into an even worse disaster. Like just nothing is going right. And it gets worse and worse and worse. And you think, how could this, like everything that goes wrong possible happens? How do you tell the difference between whether this is the universe saying, no, stop doing it, or if it's that test of how bad you want it, you have to keep going. I think it's really difficult sometimes to figure out which is which. And I was just listening, not listening, I was reading a book describing, I forget the name of the movie, I think um, it'll come to me later, but it's Francis Ford Coppola who made the movie Apocalypse Now, which you probably mm -hmm. have seen. And most sure. people have seen that movie. But there's another movie, I think it's called Into Darkness or Heart of Darkness, which is a movie about him making Apocalypse Now. Oh, wow. And I haven't watched it. I want to watch it after I read this. But apparently, it nearly ruined him making this mm -hmm. movie. It, uh, it completely, it bankrupted him. He went to debt. He was worried about losing his, losing his career and family. It took him years. He was shooting this movie in the Filipino jungle and he had all this footage and he just didn't, he had some kind of thing in him that said, I need to do this, but he didn't have any concrete vision. He didn't know what it was about. And something just drove him to keep doing it, keep doing it, keep doing it. And it, disasters kept happening. happening. He, re he re rewrote the script like, I don't know how many times, dozens of times and almost lost his mind. 
and went into a suicidal depression trying to get this movie done. And then at the end, he had this basically masterpiece. Most people agree that that movie is a masterpiece. Yeah. But something was keeping him going through all that time. And he, he put it all on the line, you know? Yeah. And with no feedback, no positive feedback. Yeah. I think that happens. I don't know where you draw that line, but I see that same thing in people at the top of their games, regardless of what game they're playing. Like if you take Jeff Bezos, for example, like here's a guy that started off selling books and he's got his life, he's got a family. And then at some point in time, he hooks up with the CIA and it turns into a behemoth. But like, look at that guy's life where, you know, he goes from, from being one guy and, and at some point in time, he has to ask himself, okay, what's more important, this Amazon thing or my family? You know, what's more important, me being a defense contractor and creating this thing that's going to last forever or me spending my limited time on earth with the people that I, I love? Like, if you look at people that in finance, like almost every one of them has been divorced at least once. A lot, like look at Al Gore's kids who try to commit suicide or like so many people, when you get to a level it's almost like that saying you can only a man can only serve one master. Like you got to yeah. choose. Like, do you want to be the greatest at the game? Because if you do, that's all you can do. You can only play the game. You, you don't have time for a family. You don't have time for kids. You don't have time for a wife. You can you can half-ass it, but you know, are you really giving all you can? Because you can't give everything you have to two things. If you want to be the best, then you got to choose and. You know, I, I don't know where that line is drawn. If if the if it's the world, maybe it's always a test. You know, maybe it's 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 always a test. What do you want to do? How bad do you want it? And and sometimes you get to that test and you look back at your family, you look back, you look at the you look at the you look at the fork in the road. Hey, am I gonna go to the right? Am I gonna go to the left? Because it's dead ends here. I gotta choose one. So maybe maybe the line yeah. isn't so much a line as it is a fork in the road, as it is a decision. Yeah, I was musing about these these topics a couple weeks ago, and maybe we already talked about this. Uh, I can't remember, but there there's a saying. I think it's from Mexico that says you have two deaths. Mm. First death is when you die, and the second death is the last time anyone speaks your name. And mm. for the majority of people, if you really think about it, I mean, two or three generations after you're you're dead, no one's going to remember you anymore because everyone you knew is also dead. And so the only way, or it seems to me, the mm -hmm. only way if, if you're motivated by a legacy, right. the desire to live forever in some form, you have to do something either really amazing or really awful. Yeah. And what kind of obsession must such a person possess for that thing in order to, to drive it to completion? And like you said, you can only serve one master. Those people that have done those really amazing or really terrible things, right. they've been minded. Only that, no looking any other direction until they went to some, some mastery level. And I think, yeah. like you said, uh, to have a balanced life, you know, if you want to do that, you can't have that. You got to be totally unbalanced and obsessed. Yeah. It's, you know, I, I like to read different biographies. And, and when you say that, I've never heard that before. You have two deaths. I never heard that the last time somebody says your name, but it, it makes sense when it comes to mortality and immortality. On the topic of biographies, 
sometimes you read the biographies of, you know, the, the, there was one called Titans and it was like, you know, um, the rail Carnegie and, and, you know, the railroad magnets and, and all these people. And they, they talk about how driven they were and you can read Rockefeller's biography and how he's mean to his kids and try to trick them into like being crazy people and stuff. But then you read biography biographies about people laying on their deathbed. And the majority of the ones I read about people on their deathbed, they don't, their last breath is like, it, it, it's never about money or legacy. It's about, I wish I was a better father. I wish I was a better yeah. person. And I, I remember a quote that says, at some point in life, money has a discount rate. Like the older you get, like the less it's worth. You can have tons of it when you're old, but if you're old and you're dying, what good is it? You know, and, and maybe, maybe that's that line where if you, if you spent your whole life building a masterpiece, building a fortune, building a fortress and a behemoth of a company, and now you're, I don't know, 85 years old and you're on your third heart transplant, like what good, all you have is that money. So that money becomes your baby and you use it to, to push people around to show that you're still relevant. And in some ways, I, some ways I, sometimes I think, and I'm not a billionaire. I'm not, I don't own any companies that are bohemists or anything like that. But in some ways I feel like those people never really got to live because they spent all their time building this sandcastle, right? At, in the, at the end of the day, nothing lasts, even if it's 10 generations, not, it's not going to last. And so if, if you're fighting to have people speak your name when you're not around, you're definitely not living in the present. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. It doesn't seem to be much correlation between those kinds of wealth and, and happiness. I mean, I know some very happy, wealthy people. I know yeah. some very miserable, wealthy people. Yeah. The ones that are happy, they seem to get it from having a sense of purpose by, yeah. you know, help, the idea that they're helping others and the more yeah. money they have, the more people they can help. And it's the Scrooges that are the unhappy that just sit in their wealth and try to try to preserve it. Yeah, I just thought of something while you were talking, but I can't remember what it was now. A couple things. There was a study. I think Harvard did this. Mm. It was a seventy-year. You know the study I'm talking about? I I I may, but but please flesh it out. I'm not I'm not sure. Let me hear. It was, yeah, it was a seventy-year. I think it's the longest study ever done. I think it was done over seventy years where they they tracked like 5,000 people or some pretty significant number of people throughout those 70 years and then had them rate their happiness after that time period and then correlate, well, with, you know, what do they associate happiness with? And it was always relationships. Mm -hmm. That was the main driver was health of relationships. So that goes to what you were saying before about where do you put your focus? Yeah. And okay, I had another pretty good point, but it'll, it'll come to me, but it was yeah. on this topic. Yeah. I heard a similar, I heard a study too. And, and sometimes whenever I see a study that's in the papers, I begin to question it. Like if it's all over the news and it's on the papers, I start to think, oh, it's probably propaganda. But the study was something like they, it was some Ivy league school and they did a study and they came to the conclusion that, if you make $70,000 a year, you're not much, you'll never be much happier than someone that makes a million dollars a year. But then I started thinking yeah. that's pro they probably just tell that to people that make $70,000 a year 
so they don't want to make more so they feel good about themselves you know <laughs> like how do they you know i never looked into the study like i'm but the more that i thought about it i'm like dude that sounds like i don't even know how you first of all how would you measure that second off a lot of people make like 70,000 so they're probably telling all those people hey don't worry you're just as happy as this guy that drives the bentley over here living on the mountain which is probably not true but yeah, I, I don't, I don't know. I just, yeah, that's, I, that's interesting. I don't, you could, there's a lot of ways we, you can go with that, that data. Cause for sure there's, a, there's an angle of them trying to keep, you know, the little yeah. man down and saying, yeah. didn't try to get the millions. But on the flip side, I do think there is a diminishing return right. to more money. And I don't know if it's 70,000, maybe it's 110, maybe it's 150. Like, I don't know. I think there, I do think there is some number cause I hit that number too. At some yeah. point, I had a pretty good. I think at the my best, I was making like, one hundred and forty ish thousand at my old job. For me, that was great. That's huge, man. I'm I'm looking around, looking at what the stuff I buy, and I'm going, well, like, what am I gonna do with the rest of the money after? Because I didn't wasn't spending. I mean, I take trips and stuff, but I sure. wasn't spending nearly enough to to use up all my salary and that sounds like a hard problem to have right it's really tough isn't <laughs> this guy oh my god he's got too much money to come. What is he gonna do? right but it wasn't a, it wasn't a problem but I, at some point i was like man i don't really know how much how much more money i need and the, the idea of having raises wasn't super motivating because i felt yeah. like i had plenty but then yeah. again for anyone listening i'm not kind of i'm a little bit abnormal with my spending i wouldn't use the label minimalist but it's pretty close to that I mean, I've got like, you know, 10 pairs of shirts and, and, you know, two pairs of pants and three, four pairs of shorts. I don't really buy anything. I never had a car. I never owned property or had really much desire to own property. I like being unattached and untethered where I could just get a room here. And anytime I want to leave, I can just leave. So yeah. I like that flexibility. And I got there by not tethering myself too much to stuff. But um, yeah, so for me, it was it was more than enough. So, it, but it's, it's very individual. There are people that are making 300, 400 and think they don't have enough because yeah. they take their money. Like my old boss, he was easily making 400, $500,000 when I left. And he was always somehow not having money because he would, I mean, he had two kids and, and his wife was staying home mom, but even so he, uh, yeah, he just bought a house. Like he was doing something. He was always putting money down and he never had cash. He never had cash flow. So yeah, it's 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 extremely individual. Yeah, I think there's something. I got another friend. Yeah. he he hasn't worked in like ten years, really, and he doesn't spend anything. He I just talked to him a couple of weeks ago. He was on his third house sit tour, so he arranged some. I don't know if it's through an app or something, but he would get free rent just house sitting, and he would kind of bounce around between pet owners, watching their dogs and cats in exchange for free rent. He basically dumpster dives. I'm not exactly sure how he got his food, but he somehow <laughs> got free food. And then he would sort of barter for things. You know, he teaches massage and he would go to music festivals and do massages in exchange for whatever. So, yeah, I mean, yeah, so individual. Yeah, it's awesome to hear that you can, you know, so much of what we're taught growing up maybe it's the Prussian school model, or maybe it is just the world of industry and, and the way we learn. But we're taught that this is the way to do it. You go to school, you find a job, you work for somebody, you get a paycheck, and then you have a family and then you die. You know, it's like this race from cradle to grave. And 
maybe that system is out there because people need structure, or maybe that system is out there because there's a true ruling class that that needs. Maybe, maybe that's the way society is structured: is that hey, every but we need the majority of people to work. A handful of people don't have to. But it's it's always interesting to me to see people who have chosen a different path, be it living in Bali, be it your friend that has found a way to make some money here and there. And I that may not be the path for everybody, but I think it's important for young kids to see or understand that there are different ways to do it. And you don't have mm. to be given this cookie cutter idea of life because there's a lot of wiggle room. There's a lot of ways to live a life worth living if you're willing to take a chance. Yeah, I think one of the major issues we have in the Western society is that there is no, like we were never taught to, that it's okay when you have enough. Yeah. When do you have enough? That, that's not emphasized. What's emphasized is more. Yeah. Always more. More yeah. stuff, more money. And how many people lost fortunes in crypto recently a because lot. they saw the number go up and they want, I want a higher number. I want a higher number. And they kept waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting. And then they got dumped on by the whales that are like, all right, we're going to sell on all these, these plebs and take all their money yep. because they couldn't sell because they, they wanted a bigger number. And then people who manage their wealth, I know some of these people that they're obsessed with wealth management and their whole goal, again, is to make the number higher. So, and some of them never have any cash Yeah. because everything is, is locked up in some fund or whatever. They're just trying to grow their wealth, but they're not actually spending their money a lot of the time. So when is it okay? And that's something any, anybody should ask themselves on a regular basis or anybody listening now. When is it okay to feel like you have enough? And what is enough for you? What is the, what you need just to feel happy and like you're okay? We're not yeah. really taught to think that way. Yeah, we're taught just the opposite. We're, we're taught that not only do you not have enough, but you're not enough. Like, look at this magazine. Look at this, look at yeah. this beautiful girl in this magazine. Look at this guy over here on the magazine smoking a cigar next to a Bentley. How come, how come that's not you, you know, like, and, and it's not, they don't use the words and say, you're not enough, but what they do is communicate it to you through symbols and imagery. And mm -hmm. even if you talk to your neighbor, you know, oh, look, your neighbor got a new car. You know, it's, it, there's a, there's a thing called keeping up with the Joneses and, you know, yeah. every, every company is built on the idea of excess profit. Like that's, you know, I, I was listening to this climate change meeting and it was all these captains of industry and they were talking about all these things that they were doing to help climate change. But all I, all I heard was them cutting prices. Like when I think of here, here's some things that they were talking about. So there were, there was like a fast food, someone who owned multiple fast food chains. And they says, you know, when climate change came around, we thought it was like a good idea to get rid of like the, the, the excess stuff that hurt the planet, like straws and bags. And I'm like, no, you didn't. That's like somebody in a meeting that's like, why are we giving away straws for free? You know, that's like, why are we giving away these bags for free? They just found a way to get rid of the stuff. And they had already factored in the straws and the bags in their, in their yearly 
quarterly, monthly, whatever. Hey, what if we get, how much money can we save if we get rid of straws? Make people bring their own straws and do their own bags. Or we can make them do this. So then they get rid of that stuff. And they're like, climate change. You know what I mean? And then th there was another company that was talking about, uh, they were selling beverages of some sort. And they're like, you know, we are, um, we are excited because we are, we're using this different type of, of packaging. And, you know, it makes me think whenever I see companies that are selling stuff, I don't care what they're selling. If you are a business and your business is based on selling excess, like you want people to buy more, like you're not doing anybody any favor. So you shouldn't lie about it. If you, your business model is based on selling excess widgets. Like you want to sell as much as possible. Like you're doing the opposite of cutting back. Your whole, like your business would crash if you sold less. So how can you possibly sit up here and say you're trying to make things better? You're not. It's just, it just, it just, I don't know. I, it trips me out how we bend backwards to say things that are untrue. Like even corporations today have this term called negative growth. Like what the, what the heck is negative growth? That's, we're so obsessed with growth that you can't say you're losing. You say we have negative growth. So I, I think it comes back to wealth. I think it goes back to profits. And I think it comes back to us being programmed to see things a certain way. Yeah. And for anybody listening, I'm not saying you shouldn't have more. You know, if right. you want more, if you want to make more, you want to earn more, like that's great. Everything's fine. It's just the idea that you aren't good because you don't have more. I think that's, that's the point. part to work on. Yeah. Because I'm my favorite. Like, I like money. Money solves a lot of problems. You can change it, exchange it for things. It's great. It is great. But it has to sound like one of these money downers. <laughs> yeah. No, money's awesome. Don't get me wrong. But I, I in some ways, I, I think it can poison you in some ways because once you start making a lot of money, oh, am I back? Yeah, like it's it's all good. You yeah. money is awesome, but you should be careful. I think it, it's it's a slippery slope. And sometimes I think the more you get, the and maybe this is maybe it's not just with money. Maybe it's with everything. The more you get, the deeper you get into it, a little bit. Like, I don't know. It's it depends on maybe yeah. how you define money. Like, what is money? Is money a tool? Is money a status symbol? Like, is it a measurement of time? Like, what? How would you define money? Yeah, it's how you, it's how you define wealth ultimately, right? Yeah. So, there you go. wealth an aspect of an aspect of wealth could be your health. It could be your relationships. Mm -hmm. So that's you got to take in all these things to actually say I'm a wealthy person. I'm living yeah. a life full of abundance and wealth. So I, I define it that way. I, I add time to the equation. Yeah. A person who has lots of money but no time, I don't know if that person's wealthy because they're not using their time and they may lose it and then regret not doing something differently with it. So I think you got to put wealth into it. And um, so one person has defined it, which I kind of like, is how much, based on what your money whatever you have now, how much free time would you be able to have with that? If you just, if your income stopped, how long could you stay alive with your current level of money? That's, so that's another way to think about it. You know, is it six months? Is it a year? But yeah, t time, time definitely factors in. Yeah, I agree too. I, lifestyle yeah. and like ha 
having relationships and having the ability to live your life and like being healthy, like you said, being able to spend time with people you love or what if you have a toothache, you know, it helps to have money yeah. to get that fixed, you know, mm -hmm. what, yeah. um, you know, let, let's shift gears here for a minute. You told me earlier that you have a friend who has been practicing yoga and is asking questions like what is, is. Yeah, this is a, a huge can of worms, a lot of rabbit holes to go down into. This is the same friend I mentioned earlier who lives more or less without money. I've known him for over 20 years, and he's a very smart guy, and he's probably introduced me to a lot of different spiritual books over the years because we you know, talk on the phone, exchange information. So lately, he's been getting into an author, which I recommend everybody check out who's at all interested in the spiritual path and spiritual growth. His name's Jed McKenna. Mm. Funny that is McKenna and all the other yeah. great McKennas out there. He's, uh, he's, I think he's dead now, but he's got eight or nine books that he's written on these topics that are, I think they're wildly entertaining. I love his writing style. It's humorous. He's got a really, he's a really smart guy. And really engaging writer. I think I, I've written, I've read all his books, I think two or three times now. Oh, wow. And he writes about enlightenment. So this is a guy who claims he's an enlightened being. And he set out to write these books to explain what it is and what it isn't. So we got on these topics of all the different writers. Man, those mowers are really loud right now. Yeah, uh, all the different writers and what they define as enlightenment. And what it's been over the years. And this guy is saying they're all wrong. It's this. So he got on this path and we've had these discussions and now he feels like he's going through this enlightenment process that this writer describes. And then, so we started talking about all the different ego traps mm. that exist on the way. Cause ultimately I guess one way you could define enlightenment is the dissolution of the self. So whatever we have is our opinions, beliefs, uh, identity, what's at the core of our being of, of, of what our existence is. And a lot of different writers have tried to point to the same thing, I believe. And I think what they're talking about is, I don't know if everyone who's listening has experienced this, but there, there is something fundamental to everything else that you experience and it's that idea of the watcher that whatever the presence wherever you're wherever you are it's the thing that's taking in the information the thing that is sensing the thing that is experiencing before the thoughts and the emotions and the judgments that follow the idea that you're just awake and alert the thing that's perceiving everything we can call that awareness and i think that's what the most writers are talking about. When you get to the true self, it's this thing that's eternal, ageless. If you, if you really close your eyes and try to experience it, I personally don't feel any older now at the core than I did when I was 15. Yes, my thinking has changed. I'm more wise. My personality has changed. But there's that thing at the fundamental building block of, of being that's the same always, that perceiver. So 
this guy, Jeb McKenna, he says we, we don't have a self. He says the self is a lie. And that once we extract all of these things that are the superficial self, we get nothing. And all of reality is an illusion. All of the things that we are seeing and talking about, they're just constructs of thoughts and they're all false. And they don't, they're not actually the true self at the, at the bottom. So he's, my friend is going through this now and he's, he's saying that he, uh, he, he's experiencing this now. And he's, and I was talking earlier about how it's not that different from a dissociative disorder mm. that you would label somebody as being, uh, being crazy because he's now basically telling me he's, he doesn't see anything as real people, the world, it's all, it's all illusion. It's all entertainment. So then Man. I started thinking how many, how many potentially enlightened people are just labeled as crazy? Maybe they're all beyond us. And how many people really are just crazy? I don't know. It's, it's, it's a huge rabbit hole to get into. And then I asked him the question. I said, how do you know that what you think you're experiencing isn't actually your mind convincing you that that's what you're experiencing because you desire enlightenment? So it's still ego. Yeah. So yeah, I don't know. It's it, ego is everywhere man so yeah, yeah having those conversations uh, that's awesome too out there for a lot of people <laughs> i don't know i think it's fascinating like you know i can understand i, I i've gotten some pretty deep spots before where you know I, i'm sitting here thinking like dude i'm making this guy move over here like that's me doing that you know or even when we talk we talked earlier about how we've both had situations where we felt like the universe was speaking to us on some level. That's kind of the same thing is being aware of that. Yeah. I heard a story one time of a, a guy was sitting in a car and he says he was just sitting in his car and he was watching, he was waiting for a friend to come back or his wife to come back. And he's sitting in this car and he was staring at this old ramshackled house on top of a hill. Might've been Terrence McKenna. And he was just staring at this house, staring at this house and he goes, I wonder if I could collapse this house with my mind. Like he was just thinking that. And so he stared at it. He stared at it. And the house, boom, it crumbled and fell to the ground. He's like, oh. True story? Dude, he just, he, he, the, the whole house crushed. And he's like, I just did this. And he said he just put his head in his hands. And he's like, that's the crazy. I, he just started freaking out. And then he looked back up and there was a bulldozer behind the house. And they were tearing the house down. But he didn't see the bulldozer. But he thought he did it because he didn't see the bulldozer. You know, and it turns out they yeah. were working up there and stuff. But for a moment, like he collapsed that house in his mind, you know, and it just made me, then I went down the rabbit hole. I'm like, well, maybe he made the bulldozer, you know, but, it, and in some ways, if you look at the way you accomplish your dreams, you accomplish your goals at some point in time, like you've written a book, you've created courses at some point in time, you had to translate your vision into reality, right? When you talk about it's a dream. When you envision it's possible, but when you schedule it, it becomes real. Like you've taken something abstract in your mind that existed in only your mind and you have turned it into reality. You've just turned it into a book. You know, it's like, boom, I made this. And you, at first it was just abstract. So in some ways, what your friend is saying is, you know, if you can take things from inside your head and put them into the real world, like that's that's a pretty abstract way to manifest things, but people do it all the time. Some people do it on a bigger scale, right? Is that kind yeah. of similar? Sort of. Um, what he's saying is that it's all 
with what this author is saying is that how do I put it in his words? Um, all beliefs are false, basically. Mm. And the only thing that you can say for sure is that I exist because I'm aware. Mm. And I can't say for sure that you even exist because I can't experience you. You could be very well just an actor in this hologram that you know seems to be assembling itself around me with me at the center as if I were in a video game. And we don't have to take it to that degree to start to see how many things in the world are actually illusory. And we talked about it before with a little bit about what science is telling us, but even think about the concept of, of government. We have, you know, these people, we just, there's an agreement we have apparently that people rule us. And we never voted for it. We can vote for people. We can vote for who is ruling us. But I don't remember voting on whether I was going to be ruled or not. We just sort of uh, all accepted that. Yeah. And the, the things that are constructed in the political space with the media, so much of that is illusion because it's just narrative. Yep. They're crafting narrative. And in many ways, it's just like a game of who can craft the most compelling story and get the most adherence to that story to then join their side of the game. And it's almost like the person who lies the best, participates in the illusion the best, gets the most spoils. And uh, I don't know, it's really, uh, it's quite humbling to think about that sometimes where you don't, like, when do we all agree to all this? Are we just sharing are we sharing an illusion of systems and this is just, this is the way it is, but we've just sort of dreamed that into existence and we're just accepting it. Because as you said, it was a thought at some point. Some people got together and they thought, how do we structure society? And they did it, but maybe there's a better idea, but we're just, maybe, you know, we haven't found it yet, but we're just participating in this illusion because we think that's the way things are. So that's one example how, of how we can't ever really be sure about what's real if we're getting our information secondhand all the time and pretty much all the information we ever get is secondhand. So even um, to give the example of people that will quote scripture mm. and we'll say, Jesus, Jesus said X. Well, we don't know that because even if there, let's assume that there was a Jesus, which we're pretty sure that there, there was a real guy, but we can't say for sure. We don't know what he said exactly. And we also don't know what he meant by that because it's been interpreted. It's been recorded by somebody and interpreted by somebody. So all, all I have to do is get people to believe what I believe and then they live in my world. Yeah. That's the illusion. It's like how to get people to believe your version of things and what are beliefs, if not emotional attachments. So that would explain why emotional triggers get people so much. And that's why people use plays on emotion. It's, it's just a way to draw them into your fantasy or your illusion. Yeah. And that's what we're seeing with what's going on in the media right now. Everyone's getting all riled up about right. the blue team or the red team or whatever team they're on. And they're using your emotions to get you to solidify your belief. Mm. And ultimately, probably 
get in conflict with each other because whatever it is, it's ego, the desire to be right, the desire that your tribe is the one, and then you solidify your beliefs like that with belonging or whatever it is that, that keeps you in there. So if you remove emotional attachments, what beliefs do you have left? If there's, you know, if there's nothing tying you to it, what do you believe in? And a lot of what we have in terms of our existential belief systems, like religions, he says, he argues this guy, that it's just all fear, that our ultimate fear of non-existence has created story of an afterlife or a heaven or a reincarnation. So that becomes a belief system that we attach to because we feel better about it. And that's all it is. He calls it like a drug. It's just a drug to keep us docile. It's very interesting. And there's a lot yeah, of different layers it is. to it. It is. It's mm -hmm. fascinating. I've thought about, I've done some thought experiments before where like, do I think that I could throw myself off a cliff or do I think that I could be like a mass shooter or something crazy? And like, I don't think I can like, you know, and you know, like, is it possible? And part of me is like, I don't think it is. Like, I don't think it's possible. Like, I, I don't think I can do that. And you know, it just, it, it begs the, and then that begins to beg the question of like, it is, maybe it is an illusion. I mean, theoretically, if I walked into the freeway, I could get hit by a car, but I, I can't see myself walking into the freeway. You know what I mean? Like it's, I, it's crazy to think about. I, I'm really drawn to the idea of like, you know, when you, when we think about people that are entrepreneurs or you think about people that are charismatic, charismatic leaders, be them church leaders or Jonestown leaders or famous authors, famous movie people, they have just figured out a way to draw people in. And if in some ways, like the, the concept of it, if you just think about it from that aspect, seems easy. Like if you just don't think about how to do it, if you just think about doing it, like I'm going to create something for everybody and I want them all to come here. It's going to be free and you're going to love it. Like that could be, a, be the beginning intro into this world. And in some mm -hmm. ways, like in some ways I can see it, man. Like, you know, if you just begin to see yourself changing and this kind of gets into the psychedelic trip a little bit, like I've had psychedelic trips where like, dude, I'm totally God. I should probably walk down the street and start telling people like it's been some yeah. pretty high doses, you know, but I'm like, people probably need to know this. And in fact, I can feel something inside of me that says I need to go preach and tell people this. And yeah. like, it's, it's a crazy thing, but is it that crazy? If, if in fact you are it all is an illusional construct. Maybe that's the way to get people around you. You know, maybe that is the, what's one way to bring people into your circle is to, you know, why not? Like everybody listen, I have something important to say. God is in yeah. me, you know, like people would listen to that. They might think you're crazy, but like they would listen. Some of them would be like, there's maybe something about this guy, you know, but it's, it's weird to think no, no kids are ever taught that in school. Like, Hey, tell the biggest lie Tell the biggest story and people will surround you and give you everything. You can make people give you everything if you just tell them to. No one, no one's taught that, right? Right. And what's that quote? I think it's Goebbels or somebody like tell like the, the, the bigger the lie is, the more people will believe it. Yeah. Well, yeah. There's some kind of game to it. And it's the more you can create illusion, the more you can enforce illusion, the better you do in this game. Yeah.
Yeah, then you start you start going down the the world of like conspiracy theories. Like the more compelling the story, the better it is. Like if you take the moon landing, yeah. for example, like who's got the better story? Is it the story of of Neil Armstrong and the people landing one small step for man, one giant step for like that's a pretty compelling story. But then there's also this other movie that's like a funny thing happened on the way to the moon. Hey, Stanley Kubrick <laughs> made this thing. Like, which story is better? Because, you know, which one do you want to believe? Because the one you want to believe is going to be the one that you do believe. And it's not so much when I look at different conspiracies, you know, maybe it's, you know, maybe it's something Alex Jones says, or, or maybe it's the that shooting they had in Texas or something like which story is more compelling to you. And it's not so much which one is true. It's which one is more compelling. And that's what the media is doing. They're like, we got to get rid of this Alex Jones. He's got some compelling stories. His stories are better yeah. than our stories. It's not, we're yeah. not even talking about what's true or not. We're talking about which is the better story. So if you can yeah. incorporate that into your life, like maybe that comes back to language too. Maybe everybody should be working on their language so that they can tell a better story. You know, if you're in a situation with your boss or a loved one, maybe you should have the best possible language so that you can explain to people in fine detail why what you did was vastly superior and then it was noble that you had to do these things and the other person is just a big dummy you know maybe that's the well, way you know what the, you know what the most overpaid profession is or one of them um an actor public speaking actor too <laughs> but think about public speakers. I mean, the best speakers that can get, make, you know, a million plus just to go talk for yeah. half an hour, an hour. Yeah. Because there's something to that ability to persuade and tell stories that is powerful. Yeah. And if you think about everything is persuasion and stories, you go, oh, okay, well, like, it's very reality shifting to start looking at things like that. And how many things that in the past we might have gotten hyped or excited about that turns out to be nothing that happens to me a lot where there's yeah. something is just hype. There's actually no substance to it at the end of the day. Yeah. And that goes, I, I heard, um, gosh, there was a German philosopher. I forgot his name. Anyways, he said that the spoken, like the written word is the carcass of the spoken word. And that gets back to speakers. Like, a singer, a live performance is kind of a speaker. Like think about people breaking into tears when people sing, like there's just this emotion to it. Yeah. And, and if we take it, if we, if we attach it to like maybe the Homeric verses or a earlier time when there were people that would go around and tell stories, they would speak, you know, that, that's why the, the Homeric verses are poems. Like when there's something that's to be said about reading a poem that makes you feel the language the same way the spoken word or a charismatic speaker makes you feel something, you know, and, and there's a structure to a poem. There's a structure to the spoken word and the spoken word can make you cry. The spoken word can drive a, a stadium of people to their feet clapping and a, a, the spoken word can make Christians fight lions, you know, and like, there's something to be said about the spoken word. And isn't it interesting how we've gotten away from the spoken word and we, we see people that, you know, like Charles Manson was a pretty good speaker. You ever listen to that guy talk? Like that guy was almost infectious. Wow. Oh, like if you listen to that guy, like he sounds crazy, but it, it's, 
it's almost like he has this perfect cadence. It's almost as if he's saying things in a way that are hypnotic. And, you know, it's it's yeah. also pretty interesting to think that you have corporations that study speakers like that. Yeah, the, the spoken word, the written word is the carcass of the spoken word. So how do we harness that to become, how do we harness that to make our lives better? Well, I think <laughs> maybe we just make a better, let's make a better illusion. Yeah. Because the illusion that are, that the illusions that are going around today, I got to say, I'm not really a fan of. Yeah. I don't really so like we, the stories that are going around today. No, we could, we let's create one right now. So here's the, here's what we have today. We have that politicians are corrupt. We have corporations are corrupt. We have the world might revolt. All of our institutions are useless. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that could be the foundation. Like that should be the found. We could build off of that. Like, so if it's like a choose your own adventure story, like that should be the foundation. We should incorporate all those ones and be like, yes, those are all true. And now here's what happens. Like we can, if yeah. we tell the future, are we creating the future? In, in kind of a way, it so. seems. So that's what we talked about before where I was had this idea. We both simultaneously sort of had the idea to redo the Eleusinian mysteries. Yes. Imagine you get enough people on the same page together and then we're creating a new illusion together. Yeah. Yeah. Powerful. And it is. And and there's and that takes us back to Goebbels. If you say the bigger, the bigger the idea you get out there, the more true it becomes. And I've I've also heard the more often you say something, the more it's believed, regardless of how true it is. People begin to believe and it. It begins to soak in. Yeah, repetition and symbols are more powerful mm. than words. Yeah. So you can get a symbol, the right imagery that sticks in people's minds for a long time and their hearts. Yeah. That's how you get to the heart. Yeah. What, like, what kind of, what could we do? that would make everybody better? Like what, can we write something or can we create, can we create a story that would bring a little bit more love to everybody? I think we have to at this point. I don't right. think it's a question of should we? I mean, I think humanity of the world itself, like we're on this, we're on a cusp right now, man. Yeah. If you're, if you're following the same illusions that I am, this is, this is the turning point. If we don't figure out a better story, I don't know if we're going to make it another another 10 years like this. Not yeah. Maybe less than that. I was listening to a guy the other day that was projecting a billion deaths by 2025 because of famine, which he says is starting to kick in this fall, food shortages globally. And where famine, where you have famine, you have pandemic, you have war. Those, those three always go together. Yeah. So. Yeah, we need we need to figure out a new story. We need to figure out how we can live free and in harmony with each other. I haven't worked out the story. Sometimes I debate between whether should I be actively participating in the illusions or should I just stay in my paradise where I am and observe things from far away, being a disinterested party. Right. I struggle with that, you know. Because my life is great. I mean, I'm seeing the stories to happen to other people, but I feel like it's not really touching me. You know, I, I see like throughout the pandemic and even during the elections, if you look. So I think I lost it for a second. Oh, no worries. 
if you look at the world through the screen of your phone, you see nothing but chaos and ridiculousness and people rioting and fighting. But when I look out my window, I don't see any of that. And it makes me want, it gets us back to yeah. the idea of story, right? Like, really, there's going to be all these, there's going to be all this famine and stuff. And, and I don't want to be the guy that, but like you said, I don't want to be the person that's not paying attention and, and, and not giving my due diligence to the situation. But I don't want to give my attention to it either to help strengthen it. On some level, I think if you participate in that illusion, then, then you give your consent to have that illusion, you know? And, I, you know, yeah. what about, I've, I've heard some stories where people decided to quit paying their mortgages and then the banks, there's nothing the banks can do. I heard, you know, I have often seen a lot of the times in the United States, we look at, China as a problem. And we say, look at all these horrible things happening there. But what I have been seeing, I, I've seen some pretty incredible inspiration when it comes to the idea of people standing up. And one of the first things I saw was when there were riots in China, I think it was in, um, what was that province that Britain just gave back to, to China? The, um, Hong Kong. Hong Kong. Okay. So when, when, after they gave that up, there was a lot of Hong Kong residents that were fighting back. And much like in the United States, when there's riots, the, the riot police come in and they, they do tear gas and they have all kinds of different ways to disperse the crowds. What I saw in China was a bunch of people with umbrellas and they had uh, leaf blowers. So when the people would throw the tear gas, the guy would just come with his leaf blowers, like blow all the gas back towards the cops. You know what I mean? You know, like it's a brilliant idea the majority of the people all went with umbrellas. And then, so the cops are trying to get everybody, everybody just puts up their umbrella. And now you can't see anybody. Sorry, cameras. We all have umbrellas. You're not going to know who we are. And I was like, dude, what an incredibly intelligent way to do some rioting. Hey, America, pay attention over here. You guys are going to, instead of, if you're going to, whatever you're going to do, you're going to riot, bring some umbrellas, bring a leaf blower. You know, we can learn a lot. They, what, another thing they had, because they cut all the cell phone lines, all the people over there had Bluetooth connections. So their phones became like walkie talkies and they could, you know, you could download an app. There's one called Berkman. There's walkie talkies. You can download all these apps and then you circumvent all those cell towers and everybody's phone becomes a connection. So in yeah. some ways, the people in China who are rioting are teaching the people over here who are rioting. So the recent one I saw is that much like what happened during the housing crisis in 08 in America, where the banks and the insurance companies got all bailed out and the homeowners kind of got screwed. The same thing is kind of happening in China. However, in China, a, a lot of the people are like, yeah, we're just not going to pay anymore. You, none of us are going to pay anymore. Not one dime. And like the banks are like, you got to pay. And they're like, nope, we're gonna, go ahead. Come take your, come take it. And because it happened to a lot of the cops, a lot of the cops are like, yeah, we're not going to, we're not going to actually arrest them either. And that got me thinking like, right. you know what, why, why is that not happening here to anybody watching this right now? Can you imagine, like, imagine if we took a page out of their book, like why are any of us paying our mortgages when we know for a fact that the banks, they create money out of thin air, the insurance companies, just have us over a barrel. But guess what? We have all the power. If next month, nobody pay their mortgage. No one should pay their mortgage. Like, let's just start this thing where people stop paying. 
all the cops, I live next to cops. Hey, cops, don't arrest people for not paying their mortgages. Let's just not do it. Like the banks are ruining a lot of people and it's kind of fraud at the top. So what would happen if we went on a nationwide strike where everyone said, you know what? Homeowners, we're not going to pay our mortgages for six months just on a trial basis and see what happens. No cops are going to arrest us. Everything is going to run just fine. But we want, we're not going to pay our mortgages for six months because we're paying too much taxes. All these 87,000 IRS agents, why don't you send them to the Ukraine and get the money back? But I think that we could start something like that. Like, why can't we have the people, especially with communication today? You know, every Friday, nobody buys stuff from Amazon. Let's see what happens. Like, I, I don't see why we can't have that. Like, I think it would, I think it would cause a radical shift in the way the world sees the people they govern. What do you think? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the people creating the illusions are well aware of this. That's why they create those, these illusions of this or that. So we're actually right. fighting each other instead of doing what you're saying and gathering and pooling our resources. And it seems like all of this push to censor the internet, to take dissenting misinformation offline and ban people that say the wrong things, it's gradually by degrees translating into anybody that says anything against the regime narrative is mm -hmm. considered a misinformationist. Yeah. So then the question is, how do we organize? How do we identify one another? Right. Because eventually online, it's not going to really be the place for it. There's been so many stories of Facebook groups being deleted. There was a big vaccine injury group even right. of like 200 something thousand people sharing stories that just was deleted by Facebook. So I'm not sure how much time we have before that will be, become a, a virtual impossibility without connecting in the real world. I don't know how we're gonna do it in a, unless we find a completely encrypted free speech platform. And there are some people that are trying to make that happen where you just have unrestricted free speech, which I think is, you have to have that. I think that's the, I think they know that. I think the people controlling information know that very well. And they're trying to make it hard for us. Cause if we can do that, if we can get out of these illusions that are making us fight each other and make a new illusion where we come together, law enforcement, lawyers, people yeah. all sharing the same idea, then they don't, then the controllers don't have any power because they only have power to the extent that they can enforce their system on us. And if we got people in the system on our side, then, then we win at the end of the day. So what about the, like, why do we need new platforms? Why, why don't we just convince the people at the top of these platforms? Like, like, I got to think Mark Zuckerberg is probably, he's probably one of the smartest people on the planet. Like I've seen that guy talk and I've seen him explain things in a way where I'm like, dude, this guy's, this guy's brilliant. I got to think that that guy probably wants what's best for the world. I got to think at least some there's, and, and like, let's say that he didn't, I bet you there's people in that company that do like, why not just get rid of the people at the top? So, you know what? I had this thing. Okay. Dude, it's so funny because I was just reading this book. For everybody, this book is called – this book is by Carol Quigley, and it's called The Evolution of Civilizations. Carol Quigley was Bill Clinton's mentor. And I can I just read you a little blurb, a little, little bit right here? Uh, it, it talks about like the different stages of, of um, civilizations. And like civilizations come and they fall they rise and they, it happens all the time and we can look from sumeria to rome 
you can just go back as far as you want, but, and it's always there. So he's talking about like stage three right here. And what he says is that when, when civilization, the, the problem is this, when, when the, the, um, the organization has, okay. So when, when the instrument of expansion becomes institutionalized, when the instrument becomes an institution, that is the problem. So when you have this idea of capitalism, when that becomes an institution, so it's no longer an, a device, it's no longer an instrument to create growth for everybody. Now it becomes an institution for people to go and take from. Like that is corrupt. That's another way of saying corruption. It's another way of seeing the process through a big lens in a third person of you. I'm going to say it again just because it's. I think it's worth repeating. When the instrument of expansion becomes an institution, that is a sign that there's a huge problem. And that's kind of where we're at now. So there are there's three things you can do when we get to the point we're at now, according to this guy. One is reform. One is circumvention. And the third is reaction. We speak of reform when the organization of expansion is rearranged so that it ceases to be an institution and becomes an instrument once more. We speak of circumvention when the vested interest groups are left with much of their privileges intact and when a new instrument of expansion, think of a new technology, especially a new surplus accumulating instrument, grows up alongside the older institution. We speak of reaction when the privileged vested interest groups are able to prevent either reform or circumvention. And in consequence, the rate of expansion continues to decrease. So there's three things according to this guy that can happen. So, and the, the best one would be for, you know, the best possible outcome would be for us to reform what we already have now. And maybe, maybe this is a story. Maybe all this hubbub, maybe all this, hey, it's going to be World War III. There's going to be famine. All these people are going to die. Maybe this is the death throes of a privileged class desperately trying to get you to pay attention to their stupid story. Maybe, maybe this is what freedom looks like. Maybe this is the first time, maybe this is the closest we have ever been to real freedom in our lives. And the people at the top are scared because none of their stupid stuff is working. And so they're like, we're going to go to war. And maybe some of them are even talking about doing war. But maybe the doll, maybe all everything we know is about to crash and it's going to be glorious because the people don't have the authority to kick you out of your house. No cops come into your house when the dollar crashes and he doesn't have a pension. So you get your house for free. You get to live with your neighbor. You don't have to go and get your taxes ripped from you from somebody you don't know. Maybe this is the close as we've ever been to becoming a new form. And maybe this is our opportunity to have a life worth living. Like maybe that's a better story because there's so much negativity out there. Yeah. There's so much chaos. Like it, it just seems to me that like the fact that everyone's telling you you're going to die means that there's people that have vested interests that are scared and they want you to be scared. They want you to be reactionary, but if you're not paying attention to them, you're not like, yeah, I don't think that's going to happen, man. I'm just going to keep doing what I'm doing. You know, maybe maybe that is yeah. what's happening. Yeah, I mean, this is this like you said. If you want a new structure, you have to destroy the old one. So we are yeah. witnessing the 
collapse of i don't want to call it civilization but let's say the collapse of the old structures right and it is an opportunity we can build up something that's more empowering for everybody but if we don't then the other story might win and that story right. is a china style totalitarian information control and social credit model which yeah. is what they're trying to do you can see it they're hiding it so yeah. this is really the pivotal moment but also, I'm thinking about this stuff like we talked about it earlier. I'm paying attention to all these stories, all this gloom and doom, what's going on, opportunity. But it's such a contrast to what I'm seeing day to day. I'm looking yeah. around my day to day. Everyone's nice. The weather's good. I'm not seeing any famine. I'm seeing a little inflation, but I'm not seeing anything really drastic. So maybe if we, maybe part of the creation of the story is we, that's where we put our focus. We don't maybe block out the news don't engage emotionally with the stories that are being pushed on us and try to engage emotionally more with the people around us, with our communities and what we see and try to actually build real community. And there yeah. are some really amazing people doing that all over the world. It's happening here in Bali. It's happening in places in Mexico. It's happening in Costa Rica, Colombia, all these groups of people that have gone, you know what, fuck all of this. Yep. We're going to leave the system and we're going to just, whatever, buy some land and share food. Now that yeah. may not be for everybody, but it is happening. There is that groundswell going on. And I hope that, that it picks up. I mean, I, I see nothing but positive things coming from that.
Aloha, everyone. Thanks for taking a moment to hang out with me in the True Life Podcast. I truly appreciate it. If you're taking some time to listen to this, whether it's your first podcast with me or you've been with me the whole way, I truly want to say thank you from the bottom of my heart. Additionally, I would like to try to inspire everyone. The world is a crazy place. And if you listen to your heart and you take some chances, I really think the world will unfold in front of you in ways you can't imagine. I've been doing the podcast for about five years. Last year, I decided to take the plunge. Well, circumstances dictated that I took the plunge. And I did. I've begun working on the podcast full-time for almost a year now. And it's been so rewarding to me that I just want to try and inspire other people. If you have a dream, if you have a vision, follow the voice in your heart. Listen to the song on the wind and embrace the challenge. I think you're strong enough, you're smart enough, and you're good enough to make your dreams come true. But you have to believe in them. And I truly believe wholeheartedly that if you take a chance, a real chance on what is possible, then your dreams will unfold in front of you. Uncertainty can be a monster. It can be something that we run away from. But much like fear, if you stand in front of it, it's not that big of a problem. I know everyone listening to this has a dream and a vision, and I hope you all conquer it. And I want you to know it's possible. Take baby steps and move towards it, and you will get closer to it. Your relationships will be better. Your life will be better. And you know what? You deserve it. You're an amazing person. If you get a moment, go down to the show notes. If you can, support the show. Thank you so much for being here. Now let's get to it.